Hello, Belinda. Hi, Omar. What is this week's gratitude blooming theme? It's card number two, the Agapanthus, representing perspective. This is uh, a great one because it, it actually, the prompt I, I like because it is very present oriented uh, and action and sort of like, hey, try this. So what is this week's prompt for perspective? Pause, close your eyes and take three deep breaths. What do you notice when you open your eyes? Yeah, this one I really appreciate just that direction for pausing, that invitation to breathe. And then the physical sort of like, hey, what is your eye, what are your eyes focusing on? And it almost then it makes me more aware of like, well, what am I listening to? What am I smelling? Like it just sort of it invites those sort of physical um, participation uh, in the moment. And this is one of the few cards in our card deck that actually has words playing with the plant in in an interesting way. The message of the of the flower is, you know, what do you really see? So it's very provocative in that it's like, you know, there's so much more beneath the surface than what we can really see. Well, that's, I think, that reminder of just, we can focus on the flower, but the flower is just really representing kind of mm, so many other things, right? From the sun to the soil. And I've been thinking recently about we talked a little bit before about how art is the bridge between nature and culture, but in some ways it's really almost an invisible bridge in the sense that there really isn't a difference. <laughs> and so we kind of make this distinction, but I almost, I've been thinking about it is like, it's not really a bridge sort of says like, Hey, I take you from here to there. Um, but it really isn't sort of, uh, there is no divide in some ways. It's like just an invisible bridge that we use to help us think about it, but you're not really crossing anything. And what's amazing is how universal these conversations have been. I've been really struck by how many people from all over the world are listening to our podcast and having resonance with the message of art, nature, and culture. Uh, yeah. Omar, do you remember which countries are our top countries? I feel like there have been some really amazing ones that I want to give a shout out to today. I've just been really surprised by the diversity of places. It's not like we can sort of predict where um, people have are coming from. So obviously, like the most downloads are here in North America, but we really are on... Um, almost every continent now. Uh, the second largest place is in Europe, uh, followed by Africa, and then Oceania, which is sort of Australia, then over to Asia. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely sort of a worldwide uh, listenership. But big shout out to Australia, South Africa, Germany, UK, Canada, Ireland, Austria, Egypt, and Puerto Rico. Those are sort of where some of our biggest uh, listeners are. Yeah, it's amazing how universal the language of nature is. And I wanted to read a testimonial from a friend who had gifted the card deck to a colleague of hers. 
And she sent her a message saying, I'm appreciating this deck of cards. Again, today, as I prepare for a check-in circle with my colleagues, they are truly the best deck I've seen for thoughtful questions and metaphors from life. Thank you. That's it. Metaphor. How are we interpreting the world around us? The artist, Arlene Kimsuda, what is her perspective on this piece that she's getting to revisit and breathe new life into? See what I did there? Yes, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's been fun revisiting this particular flower. It's like, um, I was thinking about what you were saying, Omar, about art not being the bridge between nature and culture, but it, it helps. I was thinking it's like a reminder. It's actually the reminder that allows us to connect nature, culture, ourselves. So yeah, I, I love all the metaphors that, you know, come up during our conversations, but, um, it's, I I like the bridge metaphor, but you know, it's sort of just making me think of, um, this flower, actually, the agapanthus, it was such a nice uh, reminder revisiting it and drawing it this week. Well, I think that's part of it is just remembering that everything is just alive and just sort of present. And, you know, and um, I think someone once said that, uh, I think, I don't know if they were describing a building by Frank Gehry or just sort of architecture in general, but just that the architecture is like, the music of a building, right? It's the life of a building. And I just, and I think this is partly why you are so attracted to music as well, is just that it's just, it's alive. It As you're playing, it is being created. Um, and sometimes with art, we don't always get that full appreciation, right? Sometimes we're just presented with the end piece um, as opposed to how it's kind of being composed. And this is in some ways the gift of these conversations is that you're allowing us, you're inviting us into really the process itself, uh, not just the end piece. Oh, I love the thought of being a composer, right? So it's like, I would love to compose music, but yeah, um, it's making, participating in the conversations about the art sort of makes me realize that artists are composers, right? We're composers of a different type of thing. Yeah. So I think you'll like the story. Um, about this flower, yeah, the new uh, revised version of the agapanthus, it really brought back memories. That's why I was saying that art can really be a reminder that is so powerful. It brings you to places that you wouldn't go, you know, normally. So here's, um, here's the story for the week. I'm still imagining the gratitude blooming flowers as botanical drawings in this week's work of the Agapanthus and the theme of perspective. I call this the seeing flower because when I made the original drawing, it felt like the flower kept revealing new things that I didn't originally see. It was like the buds of the flower contained the past, the present, and the future all at once. I felt the whole existence of the plant in a single moment. That remembrance led me to create a background made up of three overlapping circles that I hope can be a reminder that in everything we experience, there can be many different perspectives. And three feels like a good number to start with. Whether the perspectives are inspired by time, 
viewing a thing in the past, the present, or the future, or by the way we feel it in our minds, in our bodies, in our senses, or by the way we process our experience of a thing with our head, our heart, our soul. It feels like a useful reminder that we have the ability to expand our view of everything we experience in any given moment. I don't see seeing as a prophetic act as much as I see it as a way to expand and understand a thing in a way that reveals possibilities and pathways that might otherwise remain hidden to us. So in a way, in this expansive view, past, present, and future really can exist at once. And the cool purples and blues of this drawing also felt like a needed counterbalance to the high temperatures we're experiencing in this dangerous fire season. If art can be an intention expressed in the world, this drawing holds an intention to bring cooling love and beauty to the earth and life wherever it's needed. I'm just receiving, breathing in with all my senses, this new expression of the agapanthus. And I'm just grateful to you, Arlene, for this intention of healing in your art. And just how I've been feeling recently, you know, we've had some pretty bad fires in our near our land. And, you know, how can we see even this fear of destruction as a pathway to healing? And and I do um, remember, you know, all of the agapanthus flowers as they grow, they, you know, you're highlighting one single flower to really give us a focus in this illustration. And normally they're kind of bunched up in community. And so it's also an interesting idea in the wild how we can get more perspective in, in having a single focus internally and then also being able to see in community with others. And oftentimes these plants are growing, you know, some are fading while others are emerging. So it's just a beautiful reminder of that, that, that cycle is always present. I, I appreciate just even the reminder of the word reminder and it's remind. It's again, the mind. And I just, I, I don't know. I've just been obsessed as you know, with really like our language around these things. Like, why isn't it rehearted? Like, why isn't it re-listened? Like, why is it, why do we have this orientation to the mind? And, and, and maybe because the mind is forgetful and, and we need these sort of constant alarms beeping and notifications, but we have the wrong notifications on sometimes, right? We're like, how, what are our news alerts versus like, Hey, what is actually going to, Help us pause, take a breath, and just be present uh, because the mind does sort of get distracted so easily. Uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of appreciate this orientation of like, okay, the gratitude blooming cards, you know, just even having the physical deck uh, in your house and, you know, on your bedside table or dining room table is just like, oh, Hey, that's an alarm. That's a notification to sort of be present. And, you know, what am I being distracted by right now? That's so interesting to think about 
when you said rehearted, maybe we don't have to be rehearted because we are always, you know, our heart is always on. <laughs> so the reminding, it's such a provocative way to think about it. It's like we actually have to train our brains, right? Yeah, to remember, hey, you're here. You're part of this moment. Don't Don't get distracted and separate. Hey, Belinda, I love that we're growing more gratitude in the world. And part of the way that we're doing that is collaborating with other podcasts, including Better Place Project. Uh, I was recently a host on the show uh, talking about gratitude with Steve Norris. He and I got to talking about how do we just help promote and share what we want to see in the world. So yeah, we invite you to check out Better Place Project, where each week, They shine a light on amazing humans doing extraordinary things who share their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, and more purposeful lives, which is in such alignment with this whole podcast of collective acceleration through gratitude, nature, and art. So to add a little more joy and inspiration to your day, head over and subscribe to Better Place Project wherever you get your podcasts. This week, our guest is such a profound community builder, a spiritual guide, author. Omar, I'd love for you to share with our listeners, uh, Victoria Lords, you know, her background and how you um, got connected with her. Yeah, I have a a spiritual coach um, that I work with every month, and he's part of a community community. that includes uh, Victoria Lures. And so uh, he's like, I think you're going to really like this person because she is at this intersection of reimagining our relationships to institutions. And, and, for, and she just wrote a book called Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred. And so I immediately picked up the book loved it, devoured it, you know, sent her a bunch of notes and we've been in conversation. And so it was such a delight um, to get to introduce you to her and bring her onto the podcast and really unpack some of the pieces of her book that for me, I just really shifted my perspective um, fundamentally. And it's not always that a book will sort of help you do that, um, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, if I I'm thinking about this word or this perspective in a different way, then I see something totally different. Um, and Victoria really has a gift. Um, and I think it becomes, it's, it's because of her connection to nature and that deep listening uh, and receiving. It was really interesting to hear her, the personal background, you know, that influenced the book. And that's such a, uh, such a privilege to be able to have that kind of inside perspective. And the first clip we're going to share with our listeners is really just how did her whole life and her relationship to nature as a child really influence, you know, her to write this book and this second book that she's going to preview with us too. Um, So here's a clip of her reflecting back on that and um, it coming from also some, some challenging times that she recently went through. I think um, our our gifts, our messages, our voice comes through our wounds. 
No, it's like we can say that, but I can feel that's what this, especially with this next book, you know, like this idea of belonging to place from somebody who's, you know, been mobile my whole entire life. Um, and it wasn't really until um, the, the first time I ever moved to a place where I really felt like, oh, the land was calling me was when I moved to Bellingham, Washington. And um, and then for that to not to sort of not be as permanent as I was hoping it would be. Um, but I but I it wasn't until I actually started writing the book that I was able to look backwards in my life and go, oh, wow, these places were actually part of this, you know, I guess we could call it a calling. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the book opens with a, a memory or a remembering of this place. It was like a secret place I had when I was in high school in uh, Southern California in Thousand Oaks. And uh, we lived sort of near uh, Barranca and like a, a little canyon, a small canyon. And, and now there's houses built up all there. But then I could go through this fence and I knew where to wander and where to end up. And it was like on the edge of this cliff. And um, it was my secret place. Like I, I forgot how to get there for the first couple months, but it was like really secret. And I never told anyone about it. And it wasn't like I meant, I mean, I didn't even tell my best friends or my sister. It was just this place that I knew I needed to be. And I was quiet there and I could hear the voices in the canyon and, um, one time I saw a deer there and I went back every week hoping I'd see a deer again, never did. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't really even pay much attention to it. It was just like my place and it was, I didn't have spiritual language for it. I didn't have any language for it. It was just something I did. Um, but it, it's kind of like what we were talking about before that you know when you don't have language for something when there's not when you don't know how to name something it just kind of gets forgotten and so it wasn't until you know many years later uh being immersed in this kind of work that and I was writing this book that I looked backwards and said wow that was actually a uh, a sacred place that was actually a place where I could connect with God that I could connect with the the holiness of and the interconnected holiness with all things. I'm reminded of our conversation with uh, Olivia Chan and just that simple practice of noticing, naming, and then nurturing. And in many ways, Victoria's reflection, and she said, writing the book is like, oh, I, I had this experience, but she hadn't yet sort of had the language yet to really name it. And then it sounds like the book really then helped in some ways nurture this thread um, that has been sort of both visible and invisible uh, to her, her whole life. And it really goes back to when we don't have the words for it, it almost feels like it's not fully present in a way where we can make meaning and, and understand its significance. It's interesting how she you know, talks about the importance of language in that. And what a unique perspective um, to look at place. And, and as someone who, you know, was just wounded from, you know, feeling like this, she had this attachment to living in this one place, I thought it was going to be home and then, nope, it's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> and she was actually talking with us in Ireland 
uh, actually just being displaced and, you know, re regrounding herself in the wild there. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, one, I used to live in Bellingham, so I just had sort of a personal connection to the Pacific Northwest and just the open space that that just invites in a different way than here in Southern California and, you know, the 10 plus million people that live just in greater Los Angeles. Um, and then just, you know, I, I wonder if she does feel displaced or is it like the stony people up near Banff, Jasper, who said home is wherever the light falls. And if in, in some ways she's being invited to think of home in a more abundant way as opposed to just one specific location. Yeah. So we're going to hear from her just how does she cultivate this language around place and home and and how did she, you know, come up with the framework around that? And what I love about Victoria is, you know, she's studying this from a historical perspective and then she's physically in the lands where some of the history unfolded. So you kind of get this really rich you know, academic perspective, but then also a really embodied one because she literally was telling us what she was seeing, you know, outside her window in Ireland. I love what Robert McFarlane says and many others that word, our, our language not only defines our experience or not only expresses our experience, but it defines it. You know, if we don't have words for something, we don't pay attention to it. We don't see it. We don't value it. Um, so Bob Midbar <laughs> Is, uh, is an ancient word, uh, ancient um, Hebrew word that um, is used over 300 times in the Old Testament. And it is translated um, every time as the word wilderness. So the, um, so the, the people of Israel, you know, they, they were delivered from Egypt, from bondage, from 400 years of slavery and uh, cross the Red Sea. And rather than taking the shortest route into what they were identifying as the promised land, they were sent instead into uh, the opposite direction to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It's a pretty well-known story. Most people in our culture know this story. Um, I preached on it when I was an indoor church preacher. <laughs> and it would be, you know, sort of like... There was a lot of emphasis on, you know, they weren't ready yet or there was some punishment even in it that, you know, that going into the wilderness is a punishment for not being, um, you know, faithful enough or things like that. Um, and when I found out <laughs> what the word actually means, what the number one translation of that word is um, in um, in the in the Greek or in the Hebrew to English lexicon that everybody uses, the the second definition is wilderness. You know, so it's not un it's not incorrect. But the first definition is the organ which speaks. It's a derivative from the verb dabar, which means speaking. So there's something that when I found that out, it just like changed the whole narrative for me, changed the whole story. You know, instead of being uh, condemned to walk, wander through the wilderness as if it's some dark night of the soul or something, we talk about like, oh, it's a wilderness time. We don't know where we're going. 
You know, we're, we're just interpreting that word through colonizer, you know, empire eyes. But what the word actually means is totally changes that story and our own relationship with, with wilderness. Um, that, that if, you know, 400 years of slavery needs at least 40 years of healing and listening to the sacred voice, um, <clears throat> and, and remembering who we are and where we fit within, within the whole, within the whole ecosystem and within the heart of the sacred. And so, um, and so going into the wilderness and spending time just listening, just listening to the, to the trees, to these, to the, um, you know, the agapanthus, the, uh, the river, uh, the river that's dried up and been concreted like the one you worked on, Omar. Um, and, and listen, listen to the water as she, as she rolls through that, that there's something of listening to the heart of the sacred in that. And we're not just making that up. You know, it's something that's been in our, in our collective tradition for a long time. This was one of my favorite moments um, with Bob Midbar and just really thinking about the wilderness as the voice that speaks. And so, and this for your work, Arlene, where your hundred days of blooming love was your practice of listening to each of these plants. And so the fact that you were able to sort of be present um, enough to listen to the voice that speaks, um, you know, I just, how beautiful is it that, that for this spiritual practice, nature is the bridge, right? Nature is the organ um, that gives voice uh, to that which is sacred. Yeah, what a powerful story. I'm just, um, I, I'm kind of getting goosebumps hearing her words. I mean, it's so um, moving is the way I would describe it. And just that big shift in narrative to think about it as a, I'm condemned. Like this, this thing happened to me and it's bad versus, oh, wow, like 400 years of slavery took 40 years to heal with nature all around. And it wasn't, you know, it's like we can reframe that to not be a curse. It's, it could be a blessing. The wilderness is not someplace that you've been banished, but really is the invitation to paradise, right? To like, how do we be present? And this is one of two words that she really dives into. And I think just reframes sort of really, how do we participate in the world around us? Yeah, I can honestly say that being a steward of the land in Mount Shasta has really changed me profoundly. You know, there were times when I was really struggling with patience, especially around the gratitude blooming work. Ironically, you know, it's all about being with the rhythms and, you know, and, and really struggling with the unknown and the timing of things and, and just being able to look outside and know and remember, oh my gosh, this is a fall season. This is winter. Everything is starting to slow down. Every year, there is six months where things start to slow down and get, you know, um, quiet. And I think it wasn't until I really stopped to see and feel and notice and that I started to really embody and nurture that within myself. And 
you can't really get that from reading it in a textbook. You have to be in relationship with it. Well, I, I kind of like what you, you just jumped from wilderness to the unknown. And if the unknown is also the voice that speaks, which means then it's just like, it's not about me like yelling out into the unknown and hoping for some echo, right? Like of an answer. It's like, no, it's just, it's actually about me just waiting and listening um, to what the unknown, what the to what does the wilderness have to say? Uh, and that is really how you listen to the sacred um, is that it's actually a listening, mm-hmm. a calling. Yeah. The call of the wild. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to have Victoria just weave it even deeper for us, just um, her her context around language and relationship with land and also just, you know, being a pastor and that personal relationship to religion and spirituality. You can find that kind of uh, tender um, language in relationship with the land in almost every religious tradition but it's been uh, covered up and, and um, you know, ignored and sort of even redefined um, through, our, through our history. You can't colonize a place and replace a people if they're deeply connected with place. And so, um, and so it's an agenda. And so reconnecting with the land as sacred is an act of resistance as well as an act of, um, you know, it's an act of resistance in the posture of love and gratitude rather than in the posture of fear and aggression. And I think it's, you know, it's the, uh, it's the most effective way. And all of those other parts of activism are really important. I'm glad people are called to do that. (laughs) I did it for a while in my life, but I know that that's not, um, that's not the calling for me. And just, just being here in this Northern Ireland, um, you know, land, um, and just spending the day where bloody Sunday happened and, um, and, and learning more about, you know, how, how this, uh, conflict came about totally empire colonization at work, um, othering, finding any reason to other, uh, <laughs> um, a, a whole set of people, um, and what they've, you know, what they've done since then, you know, in the last, what, 30 years, and it's very recent, um, and they're still recovering, but to see the people, you know, it's the people who stayed close together, who survived. My friend Anya was telling about her, her grandparents, who the men weren't allowed to work here then. Um, they were Catholic, so the men couldn't work, the women could work at the shirt factory. But they had, you know, nine kids. They were Catholic, <laughs> um, and um, a whole. And there was, they were the majority of this. The majority of the people uh, living here didn't have access to voting. They didn't have access to jobs, um, and they were, you know, deeply oppressed. And um, I asked her, how did they survive? And they survived by taking care of one another. Anybody who got some food shared it with all their neighbors, you know, and. It reminds me of um, new research that's coming out. People that um, this particular report was looking at evolution and looking again at, um, at uh, Darwin's 
you know, survival of the fittest kind of language. But he found that that's really a colonizer um, kind of interpretation of his work, that what's more accurate is survival of the kindest. Mm. Those species that learned how to cooperate and and were resilient and were able to um, um, adapt together were the ones that survived. Survival of the kindest. It's amazing. And just also because last week, Arlene, your art juxtaposed the words of Darwin um, against the dandelion. And I'm also just sort of reminded of Kabira Stokes' uh, conversation when she said that the opposite of violence isn't peace. It's how do we take care of each other? It's that sort of survival of the kindest. Yeah, it's deeply resonant right now for me, just um, having been through this unexpected, you know, fires on close to our land that didn't get that too close. But um, just, you know, how do you respond in moments of uncertainty and crisis? And wow, so many uh, people showing up, you know, my neighbor literally was coming down to our land every day and watering our plants with the creek water that we have. And, you know, it's just like, it is, this is what is needed is, is not more independence, but more interdependence and support. So how does Victoria reconcile all of this, you know, history that is traumatic, that does require a lot of healing and repair in her own work as someone who was an indoor pastor that then shifted uh, her way of holding space in the Christian faith. So it was these kinds of experiences that um, led me to, you know, do that kind of study of like, do I need to make a decision to leave my religious tradition completely, which I already sort of separated from, in order to be faithful to this, this, this knowing in my body, my embodied knowing that the sacred is here, that we are interconnected. It's not just a a cool saying of Thich Nhat Hans, you know, this web of interbeing is real. I know I, I can't go back to sort of institutionalized um, religion, but at the same time, I feel like I'm still on the inside edge of the Christ tradition. It's just the tradition of my family for many generations. And uh, so it's part of me, even if I want to uh, disconnect from it, it's still, it's still part of who I am. Um, and so I sort of call those of us on those inside edge, and there's a lot of people on the outside edge, you know, that are sort of drawn to the mysticism within the, the Christ tradition. You know, we're sort of like the edge walkers within this tradition, and I think there's edge walkers from every tradition, and they're called mystics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the mystics are the ones who, you know, di- uh, connect directly with the sacred, you know, that that um, have that experience and everything else flows from that experience. So it's, it's, you know, I had questions throughout my early, you know, when I was in seminary and as an early pastor, I would have questions about what is God and who is Jesus and what is this, you know, and I just, I haven't answered any of those questions. I just don't, they don't matter anymore. <laughs> That's one of my favorite terms edge walkers um and just really again there's this we're trying to find these like metaphors right a bridge an edge walker that which sort of 
allows us to integrate and intersect um, sort of ourselves with those around us and recognizing that those around us is not just people, but place and land. Uh, and so how do we take that very holistic um, perspective to sort of how we show up? The thing that was so deeply resonant was how she landed on the wilderness and our, you know, finding the sacred from nature in wherever you are, wherever you feel a connection. And, and it kind of brings me back to the beginning of this podcast where we acknowledge people from all over the world who are resonating with going back to the wilderness and being connected with nature through the art and the spirit of gratitude. It's, it's almost like we don't need to define what box it fits into because it's everywhere. Nature is everywhere. Including within us. Absolutely. Yes. And what was really striking about the conversation with her was how she even acknowledged the power of conversation. And I would say that's probably one of the things that has been really inspired in this work is seeing how even pausing together to reflect on the agapanthus, it created a space to, to talk about things that, you know, there wasn't a hierarchy of who knows more about this plant than someone else. It's just, we're all present to share what's coming up. In, in the book, I talk about this at length, um, this idea of exactly what you guys are embodying, what the three of us are embodying right now is um, I think central, which is conversation. And there's something about conversation that requires an I thou relationship with the other. You know, if you're, if you're talking down, if you're ordering around, if you're, you know, even just giving directions or if you're teaching, you know, like that's a one way thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's not a conversation. <laughs> a conversation is something where you're entering into you know, a deeper relationship with somebody, you're willing to uh, share your heart, listen to the other person's heart. And that changes what you what you just said, you know, it's like this, this back and forth, and you end a real conversation feeling really seen. And, and, and you're in a different place. And so you've actually lost something that you thought was yours. <laughs> so there's some <laughs> loss involved. And, um, and and this idea or this this reality of conversation is kind of like the conduit of love. You know, it's like whether it's words or, you know, like social scientists say that like what, 7% of, of communication is words. And all the rest of it is 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 the conversation of, of connectedness. And, the you know, like the quantum physicists tell us that at the center of all things is not are not nouns but are verbs of relationship, of conversation. This framing of being in conversation, again, conversations, it's like a bridge. It's this sort of interconnected, it's this dialogue. And just like she did with ba Bodmid Bar, where she sort of found sort of the origin of a word and how one interpretation of that word sort of took us down one lane when really... Uh, it could have taken us down another. And she unpacks this word conversation and really how it has been misinterpreted uh, in some ways. Uh, another important aha word uh, for me was the word logos, which is a word used all over the English language. Um, the study of, you know, 
But what it meant um, up until the fourth century, how it was how it was translated from the Greek logos into Latin, which was the, the, the language of the church, it was always translated as this word conversation. Um, it wasn't until Christianity became a, you know, a state church and the emperor uh, Constantine had just murdered the other three, uh, you know, co-emperors. And he was the only one and only emperor. He, he wanted a religion that uh, that mirrored that. And so uh, they fought it all out and literally changed the word from conversation to the word which doesn't make grammatical or historical sense in any way. Um, but it, it set a trajectory. I mean, talk about, you know, like you said, what if Descartes had said, what I feel, therefore I am. Like, what if the whole Christian religion had developed as in the beginning was the conversation and the conversation was with God and the conversation was God, like totally changes everything that it, it includes the conversation of all the people on the edges of all the people with different uh, perspectives. Literally fighting over words, right? Like we, we talk about like the pen is mightier than the sword. And this to me is just such a great example of somebody wanted absolute rule and absolute rule was sort of like, well, this is the word. This is the law. This is as it is. And there is no kind of room for interpretation, whereas conversation is a dance. It's sort of in movement. It is composition and co-created. And so just I feel like those two words of like, what are we listening to and how are we then being in conversation? Um, And, you know, so often we just like to jump uh, to our own conclusions, which means we're not listening. We're not present. And oftentimes that's where fear and sits uh, in that sort of shadow. Yeah, like being able to lose myself in a conversation because I got something from what you said, Omar, or what you said, Arlene. Like that's the opposite of ego. That's the that is heart, me opening my heart to receive and and knowing that I don't know, and you're helping me know. That's powerful. There's There was one part of the conversation where she said, what is unnamed is forgotten. And, you know, in some ways, what is misinterpreted <laughs> is erased, right? And that's really what these words are doing. We're like, hey, we're going to erase these interpretations. Um, and And really, then the work is not just a reminder. It's really about a reclaiming. Right, like to sort of take back what has been sort of lost, um, and so we've lost in some ways our connection to nature and wilderness, uh, and so it is an active thing that we need to do. Like the habit, if we're not inhabiting these practices because we no longer live there, um, and so it takes even that much work to sort of find sort of nature and wilderness uh, in cities, and maybe that's why even like. The, the heat wave that we're all experiencing is this like really strong reminder of like, hey, we're part of this planet and, you know, we can't escape. Um, and so how are we going to be in dialogue? How are we going to be in relationship? Um, and how are we going to really find what the survival of the kindness looks like? So she gave us so many practices. And I have to say it was so hard for me to pick just one 
that we could all do wherever we are in the world. And I decided to go with the inspiration of Victoria as a teenager, you know, finding this magical place that was her secret place. And so she's going to share a little bit about just how she gets into this practice of respecting and honoring land as if she's crossing this imaginary and sacred threshold. So she's going to share a little bit about that. And then I'll invite you into a practice inspired by this idea of crossing a threshold. So uh, crossing a threshold, <laughs> you know, just, just reorienting your mind. I'm going to cross this threshold and I'm opening my mind. I'm opening up to the enchanted world and I'm letting go of, uh, you know, my mind's ideas of the way this should go. And I'm stepping into an enchanted world. And another thing that I've, I've um, just, just, just learned lately um, is to treat all of these things as play. <laughs> I read this study that, you know, if you want to change a way of thinking, and we're changing a way of thinking that's many generations. So this isn't just one lifetime. This is many lifetimes. This is not easy stuff. <laughs> that you need to repeat the new way, you know, in gratitude, you know, hundreds of times before then that becomes your super highway and your neuroplastic brain. Um, but if, but this, this new research is that if you do that in the context of play, you only need to do it like seven or eight times. Mm-hmm. And so there's like actual evidence that approaching this in this like heart, playful heart, instead of like being all serious and having your mind go, you know, this is anthropom- anthropomorphizing, you know, I don't, the deer is it saying anything to me? So let's play in this enchanted world. Imagining yourself crossing a threshold. You can be gazing at the artwork of the Agapanthus. Imagining yourself getting small and transporting into the flower of the Agapanthus. I'm just playing with that enchanted world of possibility. What might it be like to rest inside this flower like a bee or one of our other pollinators? Or if it's more playful to step into this enchanted world in nature, in real life, I invite you to go to a place in nature that feels special to you. can be a tree that's close by to where you live or somewhere that's a little farther away but helps you relax. And I want you to identify a tree or a marker on the land ahead of you when you walk, ideally in the beginning of this walk. And just say to yourself, when I cross this threshold, I will be open to receive the possibilities of this place with my eyes, my ears, 
my senses. Just allow yourself to walk in a relaxed way, softening your eyes, playing with the pace of your stride, and even stopping as you cross the threshold to see if there's anything that you feel or notice differently. Maybe exploring how you can see and hear at the same time. Or maybe even noticing the taste of the tree and the air around you. Letting yourself imagine the space in a new way, like an explorer, like the child. Playfulness of a child seeing a new place for the first time. Enjoying the divinity and the sacredness of the moment. The awe that nature brings us each and every day when we dare to step into that threshold of imagination, enchantment, and wonder. Here's to more play, more joy, wiggling of toes, smelling of flowers. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I'm, my, my bridge is now of dancing form. <laughs> it's sort of, it is alive and moving and not just sort of this static structure. Uh, and, and really, it's appreciating just the flow right because the bridge is often about the sort of river and the current and just how to sort of be and stay in that current like let the stream work with you um, or work with the stream wishing you well many cheers <laughs> <laughs>